All right, all right. Let's go in the Bible to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And I'm going to warn you, it's going to get weird. It's going to get real weird. Uh, I don't know if y'all were here with us last week, but Daniel kind of changed from the straight-up narrative to a lot of the prophecies. And so we're going to talk about rams and goats that fly and all kind of stuff. It's going to be awesome. Um, So I want to share my unpopular opinion of the day. I don't like superhero movies. (laughs) Sean Clark. So uh, specifically, I don't like the Avengers movies. And the reason I don't like the Avengers movies is because they're too long. Uh, They're like six weeks long. uh, And they... There's a lot of different reasons, but I'll tell you what I do like. I like movies that at the end, you know, they're kind of thinking movies, but at the end, the whole movie has not been about what you thought it was about. And right at the end, you're like, what? So the other night, I'm not going to tell you what movie it was because I don't want to spoil it. Um, But we, we let Alani stay up late and watch one of our favorite movies that has an ending like that, where when something happens, you're just like, Wait, what? And you realize the whole movie's been a lie. And I was just watching her out of the corner of my eye. And as soon as that thing happened, she goes, what? And I was like, yes, yes. I waited for two hours for that moment. And that was it. You know, I was just watching her. And I think, man, that's the sort of thing I love is when you realize, man, everything you knew in, in that story was wrong. And like, for me, I had one of those moments this week where I was, this past week where I was studying this chapter and out loud in my study, I went, what? Because something just blew my mind in this that I've never, because I've never studied this passage before this month. So I'm really excited to get there. I'm going to tell you, we got a lot of ground to cover. This is a long chapter and a lot of history to go with the vision. So let's jump right in. Daniel chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so pause. Y'all have been in the study. Everybody knows where we're at. You know, at this point, Belshazzar is dead, but Daniel is rolling back to a vision that happened in the third year of Belshazzar. His vision from the last chapter was from the first year of Belshazzar, all right? So we're, we're still in Babylon. Persia has not taken over yet. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me in the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is uh, in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. All right, so h- here we go with the visions again. Now, the, the vision from chapter 8 is similar to chapter 7's vision, and it's different from it. So it's similar to it in that it happens back in Belshazzar's reign uh, before the Persians take over. It's similar in that there are some crazy animals. The animals represent kingdoms. There's a focus on horns, especially one that raises up. There's hostility, not only between earthly kingdoms, but with these kingdoms and the spiritual realm. But the vision's different because this, the last one was a dream. This one's a vision. That's not a lot different. But the last animals were kind of these weird hybrid animals. These are more, well, they're less weird. There's still a goat that flies. Um, But this one's a lot more specific. But the themes of the two visions are the same. They both focus on human evil, like national evil. They both transcend, they start talking about earthly wars, and then they transcend that into the heavenly realm, even kind of a spiritual war of sorts. They both end with evil broken and the people delivered. So God wins in the end. So Daniel sets the stage in his vision 
he's transported over to Susa, which is going to be the, the kind of the capital of Persia. And specifically in Susa, he's by the Ulai Canal. And history will talk about this man-made waterway that, that he's sitting next to in this vision. All right? Everybody with me? So let's go into the vision. All right? Verse 3. I raised my eyes. And I saw, and behold, a ram was standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. All right, pause. You got it? Pretty simple so far. There's a ram, and he's got mismatched horns, and one of them's higher than the other, and he's charging in all directions, and nobody can stop him. He's doing whatever he wants. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. And he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Y'all still with it? So he sees this ram with the mismatched horns, and all of a sudden he sees a goat coming from the west. That's important. And he flies to the ram. The goat has this one big horn between his eyes, and he hits this ram, and he breaks his horns, and then he tramples all over the ram. And the goat grows in strength, but when he's at full strength, that great horn breaks off. And then in its place, four horns grow in its place. Verse 9. Out of one of them, out of the four horns, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. It grew great even towards the host of heaven. Some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. All right, that little section's a lot harder. Uh, it's a lot less straightforward than the ram and the goat, but y'all understand what's, what it's saying. Out of these four horns, out of one of those four, there grows a sub-horn. And that little horn starts off small and grows great towards the southeast, towards the glorious land, which we know is Israel. All right, so verse 10, look back at that. The horn in the last chapter has been defined as an, a human kingdom, but it now grows great, so great, here's where things get confusing. So great that the vision starts talking about the heavenly realm as well as the earthly, all right? The vision starts switching tracks, and it's talking some about the earthly and some about the heavenly, and that's why these visions are so strange, because you don't know what time period they're talking about, and you don't know about what realm you're talking about. We're talking spiritual we're talking earthly so the horn grows to the host of heaven that's how we know it's in the heavenly realm and it throws down some of the host verse 11 it becomes as great as the prince of the host who seems to be like this spiritual being apparently this over the sacrifices in the sanctuary and now things shift 
back, it seems, to the earthly realm. The burnt offering here on earth, the burnt offering is taken away from him, the prince, it seems. So there's things in the earthly, things in the heavenly. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Verse 12, because of sin, a host, a spiritual host, will be given to it, the horn, it seems, as well as the offering. It, the horn, will throw truth to the ground and it'll act and prosper. Y'all confused yet? (laughs) Yeah, me too. All right, so... A lot of questions here. All right. Who's sin? Who are the host? Is this angels? Because usually when it talks about the host or stars, which it mentions both, it's talking about angels. Whoever they are, they seem to take a blow here. They seem to take a loss here. And, and this vision ends in a really oblique and a really confusing place. But we need to continue because that vision, even within the vision, it gets interrupted by a conversation between two angels, all right? So Daniel's still looking, he's still by the Ulai Canal, and it says, verse 13, and then I, Daniel, I heard a holy one speaking, and an, another holy one said to the one who spoke, how long is the vision? So, pause, you see what's happening? Two angels appear, and they're asking each other questions about the vision that's being shown to Daniel. How long is all that gonna happen? How long is that? He says, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he, the answering angel, said to me, Daniel, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. All right, I told y'all it's a confusing passage. Thankfully, the angels themselves are about to tell us what this passage is about. Whew, it's really good. We don't have to guess, all right? although some of it's not super clear, all right? How long? How long is this going to happen? That's kind of a typical lament um, statement that's heard in the Psalms. How how long, O Lord? And the the how long question centers around the vision. How long is this deal going to happen with the offerings, the sin that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary? How how long are the offerings going to be taken away and the sanctuary going to be overthrown because of this sin? The answer is directed to Daniel, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then things will be made right. All right, one question for y'all. What the heck? Like, what are we talking about? Thankfully, Daniel has the same question. Look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, this is really encouraging to me. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Like, he doesn't get it. This is good. Like, neither do I. Uh, just on that reading. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ula, and it called, Gabriel. Y'all have heard of him. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and he made me stand up and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what will be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So Daniel's looking for answers and so are we, all right? And right then, Daniel sees this angel standing before him. And this voice, it seems like God's voice, comes from the water out of the Ula Canal and, um, and it commands the angel Gabriel Make this man understand the vision. And I'm like, yes, okay, good. Please, Gabriel, make all of us understand the vision. And it seems that God is speaking, commanding Gabriel, one of his leading angels. Wouldn't, wouldn't this be great? 
Like if every time you're reading the Bible and you're confused about a part, God would be like, Gabriel, make this man understand. Thank you. That's so great. You know, that, that would be awesome. You know, but just, just to give a word of encouragement to y'all, like so many struggle to understand the word. And in passages like this, we really, really struggle to understand the word. But I just want to encourage y'all, man, we, we have a better interpreter. Like for us, us that are believers now, you realize we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. We don't need an angel to interpret things for us. John 14 says this, these things have I spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's the Holy Spirit's work, to teach us and to help us remember what Jesus has said. John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. He'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he'll take what is mine, Jesus says, and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's part of the Holy Spirit's job. We think of him as, you know, mystical and mystifying, but he's really here to clarify 1 Corinthians 2, for the Spirit searches everything. Listen to this verse. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That makes sense, right? Nobody knows your thoughts but you. Nobody knows God's thoughts but God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So if this is your rookie season, like reading the scriptures, or if you've been in them a long time, man, take heart. There are hard things in the scriptures, but the helper's here. He's here to take what Jesus said and explain it. No one knows your thoughts but you. No one knows God's thoughts but God. But God gave us his spirit to explain these things. So just, just an encouragement, man, that you can understand the Bible. You don't have to go to Bible college and learn. Uh, some passages won't be fully understood yet, though, and that's like the passage we're in right now. All right, so Gabriel comes near Daniel, who falls on his face, and Gabriel says, understand, O son of man, that this vision is for the time of the end. Now, here is the exciting part. He's gonna give the interpretation. He's gonna say, all right, here's what it means. The ram, the goat, all this stuff. Here's what it means, and this interpretation deals with earthly kingdoms, which for us are in the past, but for Daniel, they're in the future. But then the explanation gets weird because it, he starts talking about spiritual realities from the past and from the future, and then he also t talks about the future in spiritual and earthly realities. It's going to get weird, all right? So, what, what, is, is this prophecy something that's already happened, or is it something that is going to happen, or is it both. Uh, can, can prophecy be talking about two different time periods? When we talked about the book of Luke, I put up this drawing, and it's going to be a childish drawing here, right? I didn't draw it. The internet did. So, but basically what it says is, you know, if, if you guys are out just right out here, it's a beautiful day. If y'all are out here and you're looking at the mountains, you can see the mountains but you're, you're seeing them from straight on, right? So you see a front mountain, and then you see the next mountain, and then you see the next mountain beyond it. You know what I'm saying? So you can see this peak, and then the further one, and then the further one. Well, if you were to stand to the side, you'd be able to see all the valleys in between. Sometimes prophecies like that. When you read prophecy in the Bible, sometimes, you know, like when we talk about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, sometimes there's a prophecy way back in Isaiah that talks about the first coming of Christ and the second coming. 
There's a lot of places in the Bible where it does this. Like it talks about the king of Tyre, and it's talking about a literal king and Satan, two different places. It talks about, in Isaiah, it talks about the virgin birth, and it's talking about a young woman giving birth, and it's talking about the virgin Mary giving birth. There's uh, the destruction of the temple. There's an immediate and an ultimate fulfillment. Now, thankfully, Gabriel's gonna shine some light on the vision with an interpretation, but he's not gonna explain everything like we want him to. He's going to explain some stuff, but he's going to explain the first part just like I want. The last part, he's not. All right, so let's jump in, and here's where it gets really exciting. Gabriel's going to open his mouth and say, here's what the ram is. Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. I can't believe it. I mean, rarely is there prophecy in the Bible where it says, okay, this means this, exactly. This is who this is talking about. So this is one of those just huge moments in the scriptures. These are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king or the primary king or the foremost king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms will arise from this nation, but not with his power, not with the same power as the king of Greece. Man, This is so helpful. These nations are future for Daniel, but they're past for us. Daniel's got to be still confused at this point, but we don't need to be. There's some specificity to this. It's super exciting because it's very plain and easy to understand. The ram with two horns, the Medes and the Persians. One's bigger than the other because the Persians are bigger than than the Medes. They're more powerful. They're going to conquer many lands. They're going to roam to and fro across the land, and nobody can stop them. They can do whatever they want, and that little verse that talks about the ram, that's a 200-year period of time where the ram has dominance, all right? So that's going to happen. They're going to conquer many lands, including Babylon, which is future for Daniel, but past for us, and then out of the west will come the goat, and Gabriel says the goat is Greece. The horn is the first, or that word also means primary, or the foremost king. This is pretty unanimously agreed upon by commentators as Alexander the Great, the primary king of Greece. Keep in mind, this is 200 years before Alexander is born. The goat flies in and tramples the ram. Greece flies in from the west and tramples Persia. It's pretty straightforward. It's very unique in its clarity. So why a goat? You ever wonder this? Like, well, why don't they call Greece the goat? Well, I looked all over. I actually spent way too much time looking into this. But uh, one of the ancient kings of Athens was a man named Aegeus. You recognize the name from the Aegean Sea. And Aegeus, his name means the goat man. And I don't know why. I searched for hours to try to find out, why is this guy called the goat man? There's got to be a funny story behind this, but there's not. Anyway, so he's historical, but he's also mythological. And so basically, you'll recognize the name from the Aegean Sea, which is the Goat Sea. So uh, they named it that because Aegeus threw himself off a cliff when he thought that his son had been killed, but he hadn't. Anyway, they named the sea after him. So the goat imagery makes sense to the original, or or not to the original reader, because Daniel, none of this has happened yet. But let me tell you a historical story. This is the what moment that blew my mind, all right? You ready? This is really exciting. Talking about Alexander the Great and talking about the Persians, this thing that's going to happen 200 years after Daniel says this, but way in the past for us, all right? This story I heard from a pastor, Mark Driscoll, but he's 
quoting from an ancient historian, Josephus. So I went back and read Josephus' whole account. Josephus is a Jewish historian, and my mind really was blown by the specificity with which the prophecy is fulfilled. See, God is in total control of all things at all times, whether they make sense to us or not. But here we can see some specificity. We get a window into the unseen realm where we see he is in tiny, minute detail. He's in control. So Alexander the Great. All right, y'all ready? Alexander the Great is the horn of Greece, right? And he is conquering. But at this point in history, when Josephus is telling it, he hasn't yet taken Persia. But he's on his way because Alexander the Great, Josephus tells us, had a dream. And in his dream, he receives a message from God, all right? The message comes through, in Alexander the Great's dream, the message comes through a man who's dressed in purple and scarlet, all right? He has a gold plate on his chest that's engraved with the name of God. In this dream, Alexander is trying to figure out how to go about conquering all of Asia. And he's trying to figure this out when the man in purple appears. And the man in purple exhorts Alexander, don't wait, Go, you need to boldly cross the sea because God himself is gonna conduct your army and Alexander, you're gonna have dominion over the Persians, go conquer the Persians. So Alexander wakes up from his dream and he's determined to conquer Persia. So he's heading towards Persia, but first he's gotta conquer some other nations, one of which is the Jews. And he wants to conquer Jerusalem on his way to conquer Persia. All right, and so basically, at this point, y'all remember Cyrus had allowed the people to go back and rebuild the temple. And so basically the Persians and the Jews, they're not allies so much, but Alexander sends an emissary to the Jews and says, hey, y'all need to oppose Darius. And they say, we can't. They let us go. They let us go back and rebuild. We, we can't oppose them. And so Alexander said, all right then. And he's gonna come destroy the Jews. So he heads towards Jerusalem and he destroys Gaza first. And then he's heading towards Jerusalem from Gaza. And when he does this, the high priest of Jerusalem, he gets, he gets word, let me find my notes here. The high priest, he gets word. The high priest, his name is Jadua, all right? And he gets word that Alexander the Great is coming and he absolutely freaks out. And he tells all the people, y'all need to pray that God's gonna deliver us. And he offers these sacrifices to God, like, please deliver us from Alexander the Great. Please deliver us. In response, God gives Jadua a dream, the high priest. And he instructs Jadua to take courage. He said, decorate the town. This is all according to Josephus. Decorate the town, have all the people dressed in white. Just open the gates to Alexander the Great. I want you to walk out and I want you to meet Alexander the Great. He's not gonna harm you, according to Jadua's dream, all right? And so Jadua did exactly as God instructed. Alexander the Great, he's marching with his huge army. He's got captured nations. He's got the Phoenicians with him. He's got the Chaldeans with him. He's got the king of Syria with him. And they're all marching on Jerusalem to go conquer it. And these guys are like foaming at the mouth just to get the spoils of war to conquer another city. And Alexander really intends to destroy these guys, all right? But then, you know, these guys, even in Josephus' writing, they want to torture the, the Israelites. But they come around the corner, they see the city, and everything changes. Alexander the Great sees the gates open, and he sees this procession of people coming out. And he, dressed in his uh, armor, he stops his army, and he says, I'm going to go alone. And so he walks alone to the city of Jerusalem, all right? He walks alone, and he greets the priest. And he greets him warmly. 
And the priest and the people start saluting Alexander. Well, back behind him, the army, the kings of Syria and all these other nations who are raging for war, they thought Alexander had lost his mind. And Alexander's second in command is a guy named Parmenio. And he comes up to Alexander and is like, why are you adoring the high priest? These people are all adoring you. What are you doing? Listen, Alexander replied, I'm not adoring the priest. I'm adoring the God who honored him with the priesthood. You see, the name of Yahweh was written on a gold breastplate over Jadua's purple and scarlet robes. And Alexander told Parmenio, that's him. That's, that's the man from my dream. That's, that's his face, that's his voice. Here's the quote that's written from Josephus. Alexander the Great said, I didn't adore him, but the God who has honored him, but the God who honored him with his high priesthood. I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit or outfit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who when I, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, he exhorted me to make no delay, but to boldly pass over the sea, that he would conduct my army and that he'd give me dominion over the Persians. Whence it is that having seen no other in that habit or that outfit, and now seeing this person in it, I remember the vision and the exhortation that I had in my dream. I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and all things will succeed according to what's in my own mind, Alexander the Great says. He says, that's the guy. I saw him in my dream. That's the gold breastplate. That's God told him to dress in that that day. Because Alexander had the dream. Now listen, here's the part that blew my mind. So Alexander doesn't destroy Jerusalem. He goes into Jerusalem with Jadua, the high priest. And you know what they do? They do two amazing things. Two amazing things happen. Jadua, the high priest, instructs Alexander the Great into the temple where together they offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. Crazy. And then the second part. This is the part that made me go, What? You ready? Then Jodhua opens up the scripture. You know where he opens to? Daniel chapter 8. And he says, you see the, the ram is Persia and the goat, well, that's you. That's Greece. You see, God's foretold that you're going to have success in Persia. He opens to Daniel 8. It's crazy. He wrote it 200 years ago. It's crazy. He's saying, you're the goat. You're the, you're the great horn. And Alexander believed God. He believed God's prophecy. And basically, he, he went in and confidently trampled Persia. He didn't follow God. Alexander didn't. But he was under God's rule. You see, God's king over all kings, over all things. He's in charge of all elections and all politicians. Even if our leaders hate God, when everything seems out of control, there's nothing new to God. Over and over and over in all history, God's people have been in the midst of people that hate God. And even though we might feel out of control, God is not. He's in control of every minute detail. So Alexander crosses into Asia Minor at three, in uh, 334 B.C. He's 22 years old. He's got 32,000 infantry and 5,100 um, cavalry, and he begins his conquest of the Persians. He defeats the Persian satraps at the Battle of Granicus in May of that year, and then he moves swiftly and so confidently that he basically, for every one that he loses, he kills 10 Persians because he knows God's with him. And he finishes off Persia within three years, more or less. Alexander the Great, the Great, believed God's greater 
Now, he didn't follow Yahweh, but I think the lesson stands for us. You know, you think how confidently he went in because he knew what was going to happen. We know the end of all things. How confidently should we share the gospel and fight against sin through Jesus' conquest, knowing explicitly through something more sure than a dream, we have the word of God explained by the spirit of God. Man, what confidence should we, should we march in? Knowing the end, we should live our lives backwards with the end in mind. And we know, Brody, back when, I think it was chapter 2, talked about how, man, why did God do this with Greece? Well, you know, God allowed the Jews to live because of this vision thing. And really, under Greece, you have all the modern world that speak in one language with an emphasis on learning and writing. And what's the language of the New Testament? It's Greek. Why? Because the goat defeated the ram, essentially. And then because the dream caused Alexander not to destroy Jerusalem or the temple, but to carry on the sacrifices. And I mean, God's working out every single detail for his own glory. And then, you know, the Greek culture lives on in the time of Romans. And the road system literally paves the way for the expansion of the gospel. You think about what God was setting up in Daniel chapter 8. The temple remains open in a world where everyone speaks one language and then there's more roads than currently America has highways. It's the perfect setup for the news of the resurrection to come to you and me. God's in control of kingdom and kings, soldiers and people, and that's, he's in control of everything. All right. We got to go. All right, y'all ready? We're gonna have to hammer down. Y'all doing all right? This is gonna be a longer sermon. Okay, great. All right. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> this, is, this is the good news that starts before time, but it's good news that really confuses Daniel. And what's crazy is he gets to see a little bit, but we get to see a lot more than he does. He doesn't ever live to see Alexander the Great. We get to see that. That's God's grace. That's God's grace on you so that you can have confidence. So Alexander the Great, he conquers his way all the way into India before his troops revolt and want to return home. Now there's an unexpected turn. When Alexander is 32, he dies suddenly. He's cut off in his strength. Some people say that he died of malaria. Some people say that he died of uh, alcohol poisoning. Most people believe that he, was, um, that he was poisoned by one of his generals. But the Bible prophesies the great horn is going to be broken off in his strength. As for the horn that was broken, then in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. When Alexander dies, he doesn't have an heir, and so his kingdom passes to his four generals. That is Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Man, Daniel 8 was written with such clarity and specificity that skeptics will say, that's got to be a later edition. It's got to be. Well, like, it can't be. Because Alexander read about the destruction of Persia before he destroyed Persia. That pastor that I was quoting before, it said, let, let God be true and every skeptic be a liar. All right, thus far, most commentators agree, but here's where Gabriel starts to get a lot more complex. Think, things that seem to swap from the heavenly to the earthly realm or maybe this dual fulfillment. So from here, you have to hold things with a pretty open hand. You have to be willing to say, hey, maybe, Maybe it is. Maybe it's this guy. Maybe not. Maybe it's this guy and another guy or another guy in the future. Maybe not. So let's, let's roll. Uh, verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, the four, 
When the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power will be great, but not by his own power. And he will cause fearful destruction and will succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he will make deceit prosper under his hand and his own mind, in his own mind, he'll become great. Without warning, he will destroy many. He'll even rise up against the prince of princes and he'll be broken, but not by a human hand. I love that. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, says the angel. But seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. That's Gabriel's explanation for verses 9 through 12. Remember the, the weird part that we read earlier that we had so many questions about? This is Gabriel's explanation. And basically he's pulling back the curtain for us. We've seen the players on the earthly stage, but now we're seeing the heavenly realm behind it. And it's overwhelming. And it's hard to understand what he's saying. And part of the confusion is that he's seeing through the players to what's happening behind him. He's letting us see backstage, but he seems to be describing the two mountains as well, the, the, the near future and the way distant future simultaneously. So more questions than answers really come from this description. When is the latter end of the kingdom? When will the transgressors reach their limit? What does that mean? Who is the king with a bold face that understands riddles? What does that mean? He's going to persecute the saints, or maybe he did already persecute the saints. When is that? Who is that? What is that? Gabriel doesn't spell it out a lot more. Unfortunately, he doesn't say, and this is the king of Greece, and this is going to happen like this. But keep in mind, we're not even sure of the time frame here, because remember the ram, that was a 200-year period. Was there a past earthly fulfillment? I need to go fast with this, but some people believe, like Rob alluded to last week, that the horn that grows out and desecrates the temple is this guy named Antiochus IV, who calls himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. This guy, basically, he's out of one of the four nations, the Seleucids, and uh, he was so evil and so crazy that the Jews changed his name, which they do a lot, uh, from Epiphanes, God manifest, to Epimenes, which means, that's a crazy man like madman. Now, Antiochus IV, he stopped the temple sacrifices, like this verse says, in 167 BC. This is about 200 years after Alexander the Great. He profaned the temple by sacrificing a pig to Zeus on God's holy temple. People have died for far less. And that, or the object he used to do it, is referred to by the Jews as an abomination that causes desolation. And this guy was awful for God's people. He put to death people that had a Torah scroll. He put to death people that were circumcised. In one shot, he slaughtered 80,000 women and children, and he took another 80,000 Jews and put them in slavery. Like, this is Hitler back before Christ. I mean, it's terrible, terrible. And he's a big deal in Jewish history. He's so big, in fact, that According to the book of Maccabees, which that's not in the Bible, it's good history, but it's not in the Bible. When the Jewish, Judas Maccab Maccabees, they called him the hammer, the, the Jewish hammer, not the Irish hammer. Um, but he defeats, <laughs> uh, basically Judas Maccabees, the hammer, he defeats the Seleucids in 166, a year later. And he sets back up the temple that this guy Antiochus had desecrated. He sets back up the temple, and when he does, he lights the lights that, according to the story, they were only supposed to have oil for one day, but they burned for eight days. And that started the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, the eight-day festival of lights from that. So it's a really big deal for these guys. And 
Antiochus dies, but not from the hammer. In fact, he's died suddenly, as history records, from disease. Um, Maccabees, Second Maccabees says, The all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. That's great. So is this the guy? Is this the little horn? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe he's a little fulfillment of a larger fulfillment. That's what I think. But if I'm wrong, that's how you have to approach this sort of stuff. That's what I think, but I could be wrong. Uh, And so does this check out on the earthly front? This guy rises to power. He's driven by supernatural evil. He causes destruction. He stops sacrifices. He defiles the temple, and he's killed, but not by a human. Does that check out? Absolutely. What about on the spiritual front? Does he raise himself up against the prince of princes? In a sense, by the sacrifices. Does he literally trample truth underfoot? Yeah, I mean, he gets rid of the Torah scrolls for sure. That's, he is an antichrist. That's what the spirit of antichrist wants to do most of all, is trample the word underfoot and say truth is not truth. You can make truth whatever you want. Churches, people that preach that are little antichrists. The spirit of antichrist is in the world and is going to just repeat, repeat, repeat. Is it Antiochus Epiphanes? See the little horn? Yeah, maybe so, uh, in part, but there's some things that don't line up. What about the dates? 2,300 days is going to happen? From when to when? Like, who knows? Some guys will say, well, it's not 2,300 days. It's 2,300 evenings and mornings, and so there's a sacrifice in the evening and the morning. So it's really saying 2,300 sacrifices, really 1,150 days, two sacrifices in a day. Okay, so what are we lining up here? Like, are you saying, when does the period start? Does it start with the pig sacrifice or the stopping of the sacrifices? Does it start with the removal of the high priest? When does it end? When Epiphanes dies or when the sacrifices are reinstated or with Hanukkah? Like, when does it end? When does it start? I tell you, these dates are really hard to pin down, and here's where people get sideways. When you take these obscure future events and say, 100%, this is what it means. That's where you have a lot of division within the church, because is it Epiphanes? I think so in the immediate fulfillment, and I think there's a greater fulfillment at the end of the age, and I'll tell you why in a second. But you can't just dogmatically try to do the math and insist that it works out. Another thing that doesn't line up is the angel said this refers to the time of the end. This refers to the end. Let me tell you the biggest thing that doesn't line up. This is where it gets exciting. Matthew 24 doesn't line up with it. All right, so in Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus about the end. When are you coming back here? And he tells them about wars and a future tribulation for God's people and false prophets rising up and the gospel being proclaimed to all people. And then he says this in Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, hmm? standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You catch it? He's saying, wait, when Jesus is talking here, The whole Antiochus Epiphanes thing has already happened years before. He's saying there's more to this story. This thing that's going to happen, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he's saying that's still coming. When you see that happen, here's what you should do. He's saying it's a future event. Could it be a dual fulfillment now and later? Absolutely. That's what I think. Could I be wrong? For sure. For sure. But... I think it's a both and. I think it's immediate and an ultimate. How do we know? Because we're told there's going to be a lot of Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, children, it's the last hour, and you've heard the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know it's the last hour. If God's people are reading their Bibles, they should have thought of the little horn when Antiochus popped on the scene. They should have gone, oh, is that the guy? This and this and this checks out. They probably should have thought of it too when Nero came on, just like Rob said. You, you think if they're reading their Bibles, when Jesus, the suffering servant, shows up, their eyebrows should have raised if they studied Isaiah. Wait, he's doing what? When the baby's born in Bethlehem, their interest should have been piqued. Bible prophecy will be fulfilled. It's more sure than the sun rising. And one day, the future day that Gabriel is talking about in the end, the full fulfillment's coming. Paul describes it, 1 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word. Pause. That is great advice. Concerning the end, don't be shaken up in your mind or alarmed by spirit, by spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord's come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object to worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is future for Paul. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, listen, who the Lord will kill with his breath of his mouth and bring it to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Whoa. One day one will arise, and just like King Belshazzar, remember after the drunken feast, gone in a night. Just like Antiochus, gone. I don't talk about him much because God just wipes him out. Look, Brought to nothing by the appearance of Jesus. He's that great. He says to Alexander the Great, you're going to be cut off. And he cuts him off. Jesus is that great. See, the prophecy about in Daniel 8 is about the future. Jesus makes that clear. Maybe part of it's already been fulfilled, yeah, but even that you've got to hold with an open hand. But Jesus is telling us future events, John 16. Basically, he's telling us, oh, I'll read John 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues, indeed. The hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he's offering a service to God. They'll do these things because they haven't known the Father or me, but I've said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you can remember that I told, you, told them to you. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the persecution that's coming, and he's saying, I'm telling you this to keep you from falling away. And you know what else Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24? False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's out in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he, he's in one of the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man who we saw in the last chapter riding on the clouds into heaven, he'll return back. That's how the coming of Christ, he's going to come back, Antichrist, breath of the mouth, he's done, and he's going to rule and reign just like Daniel promised. Some of this is clear because it's past for us, but future for Daniel. But what is clear is the Son of Man's coming. He's going to rule and reign and make all things right. It's confusing. David Helm, when he's reading, he says, he's, 
he basically used this analogy as like when you're in like Ephesians or First Peter or something, it's more like an archaeological dig. You dig enough, you're going to find it. Like you dig and you're like, okay, great, here it is. I take enough time and enough care. But he says with books of prophecy like this, it's like looking down from a ship down to the depths of the ocean. There's a lot going on down there. There's layers of stuff, and it's hard to tell what's going on. And at the end of the vision, that's where Daniel finds himself, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. That's somewhat encouraging. <laughs> but you think about the tension that's in Daniel's mind. First off, He's pretty good at understanding visions, Daniel is. That's kind of like his thing, you know, like uh, th he's the guy that understands visions, right? But he's, think of when he lived. He's been reading Jeremiah and Isaiah who's foretelling Cyrus the Persian overtaking the Babylonians. That hasn't happened yet. But he's seeing these visions for things that are past the Persians, past the Greeks, past us. Think of how muddy things are in his mind. He's thinking the temple's going to be desecrated. Well, it hadn't even been rebuilt yet. How much did this mess with Daniel's mind? When you read prophecy, it's easy to just throw up your hands and be like, Psh, nobody knows, I don't know. Or to get so into it that you lose focus on anything else. It's hard to do what Daniel did. He rose and went about the king's business. Now, that king was a pagan king, but I think the principle still remains. Let me give you some hope here at the end, all right? Here's some hope. Y'all good? Y'all good if I go about five more minutes? All right, sweet. All right, here's some hope. Visions about the future are always confusing until they happen. They're always confusing until they come to pass. Then they're clear in retrospect. Think about these things. Think about Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Super cloudy for the Babylonians, super clear for us who have seen these nations rise and fall, Right? You think about Jeremiah's prophecy we, back in uh, Daniel 5 when he gives this prophecy about the seas of Babylon being dried up and that nation being crushed. Super confusing for those guys. Very clear for us who saw Cyrus reroute the river and then the Persians overtake him. Very clear in retrospect. Think about Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one, oh, sorry. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Cloudy to the original hearers, but it's all of our hope. It is the crucifixion. For those of us that know the story, we're blown away by the specificity and the authority of this prophecy. Consider way back all these prophets that prophesied about Christ. First Peter talks about it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired, carefully inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they, weren't serving, they were serving not themselves but you 
and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What is, what is it saying? The guys who prophesied stuff in the Old Testament, they're sick because they're wondering, who is this talking about suffering servant? When is this talking about? But for us, our minds are blown because we've seen the fulfillment of the ancient words. What am I getting at? These prophecies in Daniel 8, they're still cloudy to us, but they're going to blow somebody's mind. You know what I'm saying? They're going to blow ours one day. One day, either on earth or in, in heaven, we're going to see these words with pinpoint accuracy. We're going to be like, oh my gosh. Just like the Alexander the Great thing, we're going to be like, oh wow. So hold firm now to what's clear and hold gently to what's not. But let me give you a quick couple things and then we're done that you can hold fast to. Number one, verse three, Israel was and we are still in exile. Daniel saw these visions and realized it's going to be a long, hard road before the end. We need to understand the same thing. It's going to be a long, hard road before we reach home. Number two, we need to emulate Daniel. He rose and went about the king's business. He didn't understand these visions, and he said, I've got to be faithful to that. We need to do the same. We confused about these visions? Somewhat, yeah. So was Daniel. But today, rise and be about the king's business. Third thing. This is, this is the, the best one. Daniel was able to hold this unreconciled mystery while still being about the king's business because he trusted Yahweh. There is specificity out there somewhere, but that curtain hadn't been lifted yet. But a lot has. We look at the future for us, me and you. We look at the future kind of like Daniel where we're like, what does this mean? But we also can look at the future kind of like Alexander the Great where we say, I know how this ends. What is written will come true. That is, Christ will win. You will, if you're a believer, you will meet him in the, crowd, in the clouds. You will see him and then be like him because of the blood of Christ and the sure, rock-solid word of prophecy. David Helm says this. The fi- I love this. The final word is not had by the ram or the goat, but by the lamb. That's good. Think about it. We don't know who the little horn is in the future. Maybe we have identified a past one, Antiochus. We don't know who the Antichrist is. We can identify a lot who have come in the spirit of Antichrist. But thank God we know the Lamb. If he was obscured, all hope is lost. But he's revealed himself. Think about it. The future is cloudy, but not the most important part. That is good. So let the future enemies be obscure because the hero is in focus. We know that part, thank God. We don't know exactly who the Antichrist is. Okay, we know Jesus. We're going to forget the Antichrist name anyway. As forever we sing, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let me read this, Revelation 5, and then we'll sing. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that the future, even though parts are obscure, that you're in focus. That even though part of it's cloudy, the most important part is not. God, I thank you that you died and rose again according to prophecy, Lord. I thank you that our future is as sure, more sure than Alexander overtaking Persia. Lord, I pray that we would, even if we read these verses, this passage, and and we're like, I don't understand that. I pray we'd like Daniel in that tension of not understanding everything. I pray that we'd rise and be about your business, Lord, that we would live holy lives, that we'd not derail in just studying prophecy or that we wouldn't ignore it, but that we'd be encouraged by what we see in it. And that's you, crucified, risen again, and raised up. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the newness of life that you gave us. We love you, Jesus, and want to worship you. In your name we pray, amen.